This is the Great IO Get Together, originally recorded on YouTube Live. Although you can listen to the show as a podcast, you only get the full experience by visiting thegig.online/youtube. It's time for your viewing pleasure, the online show that will change how you think about online shows. Welcome to the Great I.O. Get-Together! On tonight's show, fun and excitement like you won't believe. The thrills, the chills. Now join me in welcoming your hosts and mine, Richard and Tara! Thank you so much, uh, Pete, for that uh, introduction, as always. Uh, welcome, everybody, as always, to uh, the Great I.O. Get-Together, this time number 11. Welcome to Thunder Gig. Uh, my name's Richard. This is my co-host, Tara. Uh, Tara, learn anything interesting on your holiday? I learned so many things. Uh, but one thing I want to recommend to you is Andy Weir's new book. He's the guy that wrote The Martian, and he's got a new book called Project Hail Mary. It's I actually can't tell you anything about it without ruining the surprise, but just trust me that it's wonderful. And he says, I'm a scientist at least a dozen times in the book to justify the wacky stuff he does. It's very satisfying. Oh, that's... Definitely check it out. Yeah. I mean, that describes my typical day, I think. At least once a day, I blame my klutziness on scientists. Yeah, I agree. Uh, well, uh... Book recommendations like these and more can be found uh, on our show's Discord uh, for all you viewers at home. Uh, it's an online service where you can chat with your fellow IOs uh, or send in questions or chat with us uh, uh, live during the show or anytime at all. Uh, you can find more details about that at thegig.online. Uh, all of our regular shows, and this one is no exception, have two halves. In the first half, we have a, a little bit of fun, uh, and in the second half, we get a little more serious, all with our guests or guests of the day. Uh, top of today's show will be Thunder Gig. Uh, Thunder Gig is a quiz competition where our lucky contestants are presented with IO knowledge, IO trivia in the form of answers and must present their responses in the form of a question. A that sounds familiar. Completely uh -huh. original concept. Yes. Huh, that's strange. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the winner of Thunder Gig will get a fabulous prize. Uh, so... Our guests today for Thunder Gig are living legends in the IO psychology community. Our uh, first competitor is Dr. Mill Tockle, Emeritus Professor of IO psychology at Bowling Green State University, current president of the PSYOP Foundation. Welcome to the show, Milt. Uh, Milt will be competing with Dr. Shelley Zedek, uh, Professor Emeritus and Professor of the Graduate School at the University of California, Berkeley. Welcome to the show, Shelley. Uh, we will be playing Thunder Gig with our guests uh, until there is a winner, probably about 20-30 minutes after the mid-show break. We're going to be chatting a little more seriously about the state of biopsychology, both the profession in general, and a bit about their storied careers too. Uh, so, everybody ready? All right. There we go. Okay, so Richard explained a little bit about this game that is, again, a completely original concept. Um, you are going to choose one of these squares with a dollar value associated with it, and I will read you a clue. The clues are organized into five categories, and I will dramatically reveal them now for you. So the first category is... Not 
Moving. We'll just move it over here. <laughs> Starts with V. <laughs> the second category is also not moving. The world of IO. Mm. Third category is mm. Milt history. <laughs> the fourth category is maybe you can anticipate this one. Shelly history. Mm -hmm. And the last category is Pokery, of course. I invented that category as well. Mm. All right. So uh, we conducted a random toy cost, I suppose, uh, to decide who goes first. And so, Shelly, that privilege goes to you. Which question would you like to see? Let me do st stay with the Vs. Uh, 300. Okay. 300. Why isn't my number? All right. V starts with V for 300. Let's see what we got here. All right, this person is a professor emeritus at Yale. Ding. Okay. <laughs> 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 Correct. Uh, of course, famously known for uh, expectancy theory, popularizing expectancy theory, and uh, is still at, at Yale. All right, well, maybe we need to implement a new rule about waiting for the question to be read because. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. Okay, which question would you like to answer next? Let me finish with uh, starts with V100. Okay, starts with V for 100. This psychometrics concept is also called accuracy by computer scientists. Ding! <laughs> <laughs> Shelly, you got that one? Go ahead. Validity? Correct. Validity. They think they invented it. <laughs> Man, category sweep. Category sweep. There's mm -hmm. probably a prize for that. Okay, which question would you like to answer next? Do me? Uh, well, let me get Milt on the board. I'll do Milt history. <laughs> <laughs> All right. For 300, 100? 100. Okay. <laughs> All right. So that is, let's see here, category three. Okay. <laughs> oh, dear. So this person was Diet president in 1986, three years after Milt. Ding. <laughs> <laughs> was it me? <laughs> <laughs> it was indeed. Oh. Great. <laughs> All right. Which one would you like next? Milt History 300. Okay, all right. This is going to start getting harder, so Assume let's so. see. Let's see what we got here. Milt History for $300. Okay, so Milt advised a student, Mike Kuvert, who advised a student, Laurie Foster, who advised this student who started an I.O. YouTube show in 2021. Hey. <laughs> yes, Milt. I think that would be Tara Barron. <laughs> Indeed it would. <laughs> Indeed it would. All right. So on the board, 300. And which At, question would you I like to answer? <laughs> well, let, let's, uh, this seems like a winner. So let's try Milt uh, History at 500. Okay. All right. So wait, we did this one. Yep. <laughs> and we'll do 500 now. Okay. Let's see what we've got here. Oops, that's not it. Don't look. 
Okay, here we go. This former student of Milt's recently published an annual reviews chapter titled Reflections on a Career Studying Individual Differences in the Workplace. <laughs> Finally stumped somebody. <laughs> One would have had to have read the annual review recently to discover this. <laughs> Indeed. All right, three, two. Ding. Go for it. Uh, Paul Sackett wasn't your student, was he? Yes, he was. Oh, I'll say Paul Sackett. Correct. <laughs> oh, wow. Correct. <laughs> good guess. Very good guess. I don't know if there's a penalty for wrong guesses. Do you know, Richard? I, I don't think so. Okay. Apparently, there is no penalty for wrong guesses. All right. What questions should we look at next? My choice? Yeah, it is your choice. Uh, let's go to the world of IO 100. Okay, the world of IO for 100. This organization was created shortly after the first European Congress of Work and Organizational Psychology in 1983 in the Netherlands. Mm. Ding. It's a weak thing. Weak thing. At the International Association of Applied Psychology? Mm, it is not. It's negative 100, I've decided just now. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Mel, would you like to guess? Well, I would like to uh, try the uh, European Association of Work and Organizational Psychology. That is correct. Fondly referred to as EOWAP by many. All right, so add 400. I don't go to EOOP very often. You do though, right, Richard? Uh, I've been, I was in Italy and going to Glasgow this, this, come, this time around. Hmm. Hmm. Maybe I'll check it out one of these days. Okay, so I think, Mel, it is back to you for the next selection. Okay, let's try Shelley history at 500. Ooh, okay, oh. Shelley history at <laughs> 500. This is not, this is gonna be tough, okay. All right, let's see here. All right, 500. Okay, Shelley grew up in Brooklyn working for his parents in what type of business? Ding. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, Shelley. Mom and pop grocery store. That is correct. One of many fun facts I learned watching your living history interview. All right, so that was Shelley History 500. Um, another fun fact is that my grandfather also ran a one-pop grocery store in New York City. And so perhaps they were rivals. Who knows? Okay, which question should we do next? Uh, I'm going to go back to the world of IO 300. Okay, the world of IO 300. And that is this one. So this conference started in 1980 and first hosted at Ohio State as a long-standing home for student research. Me? Yes, Milt. So it was the uh, IOOB conference for graduate students. And who started that conference? Curiosity. Just out of curiosity. Uh, it, it happened uh, because of a graduate seminar uh, talking about how do you break into IO psychology 
And uh, wouldn't there be a low risk place where we could give papers? And so we decided to gin mm. one up with Mary Teniper and Ben Schneider as the keynote speakers. It's um, it's amazing that that started, that was before the first PSYOP conference, right? Because that was in 1980. Yes, it was. Hmm. That's all right. So it is to you to choose the next question. Um, how about Shelley history of 300? Okay. So we will go down here, 300. Ah, okay. This influential female psychologist was Shelley's first consulting mentor. Ding. Yes, Shelley. Mary Tampa. That's right. So her name has come up twice now in, in two clues. Um, and world. <laughs> that was 300. So, okay. Oops. Okay. And which question would you like to see next? World of IO 500. Okay. World of IO 500. Big money. Big money, indeed. <laughs> okay. All right, the mission statement of this organization, the oldest of its kind in the world, is to promote the science and practice of applied psychology and to facilitate interaction and communication among applied psychologists around the world. Ding. Yes, milk. Or buzz, International <laughs> Association of Applied Psychology. That's right, and I believe you are the former Secretary General of IAP? Uh, I was for uh, a, a year and a half, and uh, it just had its uh, 100th anniversary as well. Oh, wow. wow, that's significant. That's another organization I don't, I'm not as engaged in as I would like to be. Well, okay. attending international meetings is, is something that uh, people coming into the field now are especially encouraged to do because uh, business and commerce and organization is global. Uh, it's not just a North American phenomenon, and you can learn an awful lot out there. I totally agree. I totally agree. Okay, which question should we answer next? We're getting close to the end here. It's still time for you to catch up, though. Uh, well, let's do potpourri 500. Okay, potpourri for 500. <laughs> okay, uh, this actor stars in the 2021 movie Dune. Here's a, here's a photo. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like my grandson. It is not your grandson. That's for sure. <laughs> Anyone? Three, two, one. Richard, you want to guess? Uh, that is Timothy Chalamet, isn't it? It is indeed Timothy Chalamet. They say he's yeah. the, the next big thing. They say these things. They do. <laughs> okay, Mel, it's still your choice then. Uh, 300 potpourri. 300 potpourri. Okay, I think this one will be more up your alley. So this artist, pictured here, is well known for his elaborate glass sculptures. Ding. Yes, Milt? And that is Dale Chihuly. It is indeed Dale Chihuly. Do you have an opinion about Dale Chihuly? Uh, he is the General Motors of art glass. <laughs> That's a great <laughs> way of describing it. <laughs> And you have quite an extensive collection of guard glass, don't you? Uh, in, indeed, we do. It's something that uh, came with moving to Bowling Green, Ohio, most particularly, uh, because Toledo is known as the glass city, and art glass got its start here in its modern incarnation. Huh, I did not know that. 
I can see some pieces behind you, actually. Like, there's, there's one in the window. Yep. Okay, two more questions to go. Potpourri 100. Potpourri for 100. We don't have a final Jeopardy, do we? I mean, a final Thunder gig, of course. Of course, that's what I meant. Yeah, I've never heard <laughs> whatever word you just used. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the first I conference was held in this city. Hey. Oh, oh, that was a close one. Let's say it together, Shelley. Yes, do that. Chicago. <laughs> Great. I'll give you both points for that one. And you're both involved in uh, planning that first conference. Anything in particular stand out as, as something that's very uh, memorable about that first one? Uh, it was it was great fun, most particularly because we had used a survey to estimate what would the probable attendance be. <laughs> the, the average of the guesses that got returned in the survey was 500 with a range from 300 to 700 and actually 704 people showed up at the Marriott on Michigan Avenue in Chicago and made it a wildly successful meeting. In my recollection, Mills, correct me if I'm wrong, then I won't continue if I am. Was Mike McCaskey a speaker there? Uh, yes, he was the luncheon speaker. So for those who don't know, Mike McCaskey was a professor, I believe, of organizational behavior at Harvard, but also his family, in some fashion, owned the football team, the Chicago Bears, and he eventually left Harvard and was the president of the Chicago Bears. That's a little bit of trivia, I think, right? Is that correct, Milt? Yes, that's my recollection, too. I mean, it's correct now because we said it on the internet, so it's true forever. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, it'll also show up in the archives of the history of American psychology at University of Akron. <laughs> okay, last question. So Shelley history for 100. And we are looking, oh, okay. This is a good one to end on. So Shelley had a longstanding rivalry with this IO psychologist who claimed to be the first IO graduate of Bowling Green. Uh, oh, that was another tie. Go ahead and say it together. Frank Landy. Indeed. And was this resolved or, or is it still in contention? Well, uh, my preference is to go with the date of the final oral examination rather than the actual commencement date, in which case it is Shelley's Zedek. Right. Yeah, I have to agree with you there. I think uh, alphabetical order is no way to make decisions about things. Right. <laughs> Great. It starts with Z. <laughs> right. Okay. So this is the end of our game. It was surprisingly close. We've got 2,400 for Shelly and 1,700. So, uh, Richard, show them what they've won. Oh, it is a fabulous gig mug stein thing. Uh... <laughs> it's a stein. <laughs> it is a stein. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I would say we're all winners, really, learning a lot. <laughs> Uh, so let's take a five minute break. And when we come back, we can talk a little bit more in detail about some of the some of the experiences and, and uh, words of wisdom you might have to share with us. Yeah. See you in five minutes. And we're back. Uh, Tara, we're going to lead us in our second half. Absolutely. So fun time's over. Now we'll get a little more serious. <laughs> uh, and we're just both really delighted to have you here uh, to kind of get your perspective on some some issues of the day. 
Before I get into that, though, I have to ask you, so you're both officially retired, and yet you remain so incredibly influential and active in the affairs of and activities of IO. So why would you do that? Wouldn't you rather be on an island somewhere sipping a margarita? I, I think being on an island somewhere sipping a margarita sounds like a great idea, having been canceled out of three different cruises since March oh. a year ago. Uh, and awaiting the cancellation of the next one due to the new, new variant. Mm. Uh, I'm really glad to be involved with the SIAP Foundation and uh, still keeping track of biopsychology and SIAP in particular. Uh, the, the, having been retired for 12 years now, uh, I think uh, seeing the growth of the field, uh, the new people coming into it all the time is one of the features that's really terrific. Uh, it's a great deal of fun, and it's certainly where the action is as well. And so uh, being involved uh, through the foundation is, is what keeps me uh, really interested in it. And uh, it's um, now functionally my day job. This is where we need to be. I appreciate that. Shall I anything to add? Uh, um, I'm also retired. I'm, I'm retired for 10 years, and I retired from an administrative position as vice provost at Berkeley, um, but to remain active is because I failed retirement 101. <laughs> you know, Clearly. Plus years at Berkeley, I was involved in research, teaching, consulting, etc. And so you just can't turn off what you've been doing for 40 years. And I've all, we too have taken, my, my wife and I and family have taken many cruises since I retired. But the opportunity to be involved in the activities of I.O., of industrial organizational psychology research, practice, et cetera, uh, on a limited basis uh, and of my choice, I, I say no much more often now than I did before. But uh, it's, you just can't turn it off, in my opinion. Yeah, it sounds like you're both saying that this is something that you love doing, and so why would you stop doing it just because the setting and the affiliation is no longer there which is consistent with what we tell a lot of people, right? That when they're thinking about what they want to do for a job, they shouldn't be worried so much about the setting as the activities. And if you love research, if you love a field, it doesn't really matter who's paying you to do it. So it's, so one of the uh, great advantages of retirement is uh, uh, everything becomes self-inflicted at that point. <laughs> uh, retirement itself is such a recent development in human history. Um, uh, I was thinking about travel a little bit. Uh, one of my favorite trips was to the caves of southwestern France and northern Spain, uh, seeing the cave paintings as featured in Lascaux uh, and all of the subsequent discoveries and so on. Um, at one point, uh, we had a Neanderthal lunch, uh, at which point it was pointed out that salmon went upstream in all of the rivers of France. Uh, even to the Dordogne region, we had a, a baked salmon, uh, and the average workday for the hunter-gatherers then was three hours a day. Now, bump that forward to right now, looking at artificial intelligence and all of the kinds of analysis going on, and thinking about uh, people wanting to hold on to productive employment because of the salaries, uh, just think about a world in which is out there in front of us uh, where the average workday is three hours a day. Uh, what's going to happen? This is just fascinating time. I hope we can be savvy enough as people who study work and organization 
uh, to help figure out the policy issues that fall out of shortened work weeks and all the rest of that. Uh, there's an awful lot of interesting stuff out there in the future. I'm really glad you brought that up. And I, I will say, though, I do eat a lot of salmon, but otherwise my life does not <laughs> sound very similar. But uh, that ties nicely into the next thing I wanted to ask you both about, which is how you see the field changing in the past 10 years compared to when you started your careers. And and it's not just about topics, but also how we fit into the bigger picture. Um, and I think you're alluding to some of that, Mel, with, uh, with referring to artificial intelligence in the way that it changes the way that work is done. You know, do you see IO psychology having a leading role in those conversations? Uh, I would love to hear your, your thoughts about how that has changed over time. Uh, well, we certainly need to be there. I, I, I think some of the questions are still the same ones. Uh, the answers keep changing a little bit and they're a little bit different. Um, most particularly uh, the uh, 100 years ago when all this field was created in the aftermath of World War I, uh, the Army Alpha was finding its way into organizations as a selection procedure. Uh, test eight was about general information, and, and most particularly, I'd recommend anybody to go back and look at the general information test and uh, take it for themselves uh, because the answers and the, the questions are, are just sort of strange as to where they go. Uh, building up on that and figuring out how to accommodate all of this and, and change as we go forward is going to be a real challenge and uh, AI being part of it. Uh, the real question we have to be able to answer is what do the numbers mean? Not what are the numbers, but how should we interpret this and what should it have to do with employment practices and public policy and so on? Shall I? Yeah, I would say in terms of when I started in the field, we had the concept of scientist practitioner but we were mainly scientists. And I think now today, we're more involved in organizations, uh, on advisory boards, and being we're asked to contribute to real problems, not that the scientists in the back in the 70s or 60s when I was studying uh, my graduate degree, we weren't interested in practical issues, but uh, there's more interest in practice. It's sort of, an I find an amusing recollection so when I started graduate school at Bowling Green uh, and studied with Bob Guyon, uh, the graduate students would get together and say, never mention the word of consulting in front of Bob Guyon. <laughs> going to be a scientist who's publishing in the academic journals, and you won't have anything to do with real organizations or whatever. Well, that lasted and probably until my last year in graduate school when Guyon got a consulting job. He took along all the graduate students <laughs> to help out on it. Typical. The point is, we're that more involved in practice. As part of my retirement, I'm on a number of scientific advisory boards for different organizations. So we're being asked to contribute more to real-world problems than when I started out in the late 60s, finishing my graduate degree, starting work in the early 70s. Yeah, that's, that's certainly my perspective as well. I mean, we are having a concrete impact on those real world problems as well. So it's not just that they want um, an IO to say there was an IO at the table, but they're genuinely interested in in our knowledge and our skills and what we have to offer. Um, right. I think we're being sought out more to do those things. And for work-related problems, uh, we've always been involved in litigation issues, I believe, for selection and testing. But now we're being asked for more 
input to problems of work and getting along at work and work organizations. The thing I wanted to add to the previous question is I think now also psychologists, IO psychologists will, given the pandemic and the reaction to it, work psychologists, IO psychologists will have to be more involved in work family issues. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. a hot topic for the future. And that's a topic you've you've done extensive work in. And so it must be interesting to see how that has um, gained in popularity over time. Yes. yes. Right. Are there people or are there problems that you think IO psychologists are not engaged with that they should be? I can't think of any problem that we're not engaged in. Uh, it's, the it's a matter of degree. Because um, my own career, I've been heavily engaged in uh, selection and testing. Uh, and performance assessment. That's one major aspect of IO psychology. Very traditional goes back to selecting motormen for the cars in, uh, in Massachusetts and Boston. But uh, I think we're involved in everything now. Oh, uh, one of the things that I got involved in at one point was uh, being asked by somebody to write a um, forward for psychology and industrial efficiency, Hugo Munsterberg's 1913 book. <clears throat> it was the first time I ever read that book uh, because it would have been published so many decades ahead of when I got into graduate students, graduate school, uh, namely six decades earlier. Mm. Uh, it's a fascinating book and what's different these days are the statistics and, and that keeps on changing and evolving, with AI being the case in point right now, uh, but the kinds of issues that Hugo Munsterberg wanted to solve uh, were just absolutely fascinating. They were the stuff of everyday work and the motorman on the Boston Street Railway or uh, wrapping light bulbs in paper and packing them up for shipping to uh, houses and businesses and so on woman did 60,000 of them a week in terms of wrapping it. She found the job fascinating. And so even from the beginnings of the field and, and then particularly through the studies, uh, the Hawthorne studies, for instance, that are over 50 years ago, uh, IO psychology has had a, a, a breadth of coverage. Uh, we've certainly been uh, heavily anchored in testing and selection most particularly, uh, but the whole world of work is where we need to be involved um, I had hoped to be involved in a, a paradigm shift uh, over my lifetime and see that happen. Uh, we then finally figured out after validity generalization got turned into meta-analysis by Schmidt and Hunter uh, that we had been in a paradigm shift from uh, uh, Ed Gazelli and Marvin Donette kind of and Bob Guyon, a situational specificity of validity coefficients and needing to take all of that into account uh, to then figuring out, well, what is the reliability of all these things? What are the validities? What are the criteria? Uh, actually, uh, uh, John Campbell's work on Project A uh, and uh, the big monumental volume that he and Deirdre Knapp put together on the Project A findings uh, is the most thorough uh, investigation of the criterion space uh, in which we're trying to work for all of this. 
And the same kind of thing is needed just so much more broadly across the world of work in terms of work-life balance and home family and all of the kinds of issues that we see now. Uh, so uh, uh, yeah, this is the place to be. I totally agree. It's interesting to hear you use the word paradigm shift, which sometimes is uh, you know, overused by business speak people to mean any new change. But I, I think if we consider it in its true sense, uh, I, I buy that argument that IO psychology is in a paradigm shift. I mean, even questions like does reliability and validity still matter in an AI context? Maybe the answer is yes, but the fact that the question is being asked suggests that that things are changing. Sure. All right. Well, let me um, just pick one example of, of a particular change over time and get your perspective of it. So, uh, Shelly, in your living in your SIOP living history interview um, that you did for the SIOP conference a few years ago, you talked about a particular experience that I thought was really interesting. You talked about going to the South in the mid '60s from New York and gaining this new perspective about the civil rights movement as a result of that trip. I'm curious to know what parallels you see between that time, uh, a time of great social upheaval, and the current moment, also a time of great social upheaval. Well, I, again, in the 60s, as I explained in that Living History interview, uh, I took a trip from New York down to Florida during spring break, and I was exposed to uh, blacks sitting in the back of the bus. We went down by bus, uh, going to certain towns, stopping in certain cities and towns, where there were separate back, uh, bathrooms for blacks and whites. And so uh, I think when you see it and experience it, you get a different view than just reading about it. Mm. Today, I see, you know, now we have a television and people with cell phones. We're seeing so many incidents of discrimination and hate, which is kind of sad uh, to watch and to listen to. And so... I think now we're getting more exposed to it, even though it existed. I think there's more hate today than there was in, in the 60s. Well, I grew up in Brooklyn, and uh, it was a very mixed neighborhood. And discrimination, at least from my perspective, was not an issue. Now, every place you go, the, you're concerned about discrimination, diversity, etc. So uh, I think uh, we're getting more exposed and experiencing more of what's going on that's not positive than we were in the 60s. Uh, my uh, interest in all of this is most particularly the, the rise of authoritarianism as, as we see it. Uh, back in graduate school days, the big question was, uh, why did Germany succumb to Hitler during the 30s? And uh, will it happen again? Uh, then most particularly, can it happen here? Uh, the, uh, for a long time, and particularly with Steven Pinker's book uh, about uh, enlightenment and, and so on, uh, that's kind of a high point for uh, democracy being the way everything should be done. And ever since the publication of that book, it, it seems that uh, there is more authoritarian, authoritarian behavior more and more different places. And so figuring out how to um, keep that at bay and keep democracy flourishing, especially with all of the uh, uh, ease with which people can listen to news sources that they only want to listen to and select things. Uh, back in uh, my day and Shelley's day, uh, we had uh, two television networks and then two others, one of which became ABC, uh, but Dumont completely faded and disappeared. Uh, but that was it. And uh, 
uh, didn't have social media and the ease of communication and linkage across so many different ways. Uh, at, at this point, I think an awful lot more work needs to be done and exploration done of um, uh, William Shatner, previously mentioned already, and Captain Kirk and, and, and the crew, uh, which was thoroughly integrated crew, and uh, discover how people uh, learn to trust each other and rely on each other within their own work networks and work groups and so on. Uh, again, I think there are awfully exciting things going on, uh, but I think we need to remain uh, a democracy in order to be able to get that to flourish. Uh, certainly the competition with uh, authoritarian regimes around the world is going to reinforce that in the coming months, years, uh, even decades. Uh, it'd be fun to see where it happened, uh, ends up. And of course, um, uh, it's going to have to be our successors that uh, make a lot of the calls on that. That's true. Right? And applied psychology has always been responsive to uh, the current events of the time and in shaping the research questions that are most interesting to us. And you know, social psychology coming out of the World War II and asking how could this happen is a great example of that. And now we're struggling with questions of misinformation and polarization and authoritarianism. I wonder, you know, if the if the research zeitgeist is is following along the way that we saw it do in the past. My sense is it is. Um, let me shift gears actually, because you know we can't solve everything in one day, unfortunately. Um, but I I'm. Noticing that a lot of the quiz questions that we asked you, the non-Jeopardy questions, they were Thunder Gig questions for the record, um, they had a lot to do with people that you've influenced in your careers. And um, I'm curious to know who are the people that influenced you? Um, who are your role models or the people that perhaps influenced you by negative example and you said, I don't want to be like that? Um, maybe, Mel, would you like to start? Uh, sure. Uh, when I um, uh, first saw the, the question, I thought of uh, mentors. And so my undergraduate advisor and my doctoral advisor, Jim Jenkins and Marv Dinette, uh, came immediately to mind. Uh, then Raines Wallace, uh, who was department chair at Ohio State for three years uh, and uh, editor of personnel psychology just ahead of me for one issue, uh, are, are the mentors. But I, I, you used the term role models, and here I would introduce a, a name of Geraldine Ferraro, uh, that you might remember. She was Walter Mondale's vice presidential nominee in 1984. Uh, she had a wonderful way of being able to communicate with the press. When asked by a hostile interviewer a question, she could completely disarm and totally charm that interviewer. I, I, I wish I could do that. Uh, I've been working on it for a long time. That hasn't happened yet. Uh, the person I really want to mention is Carol Shardle. Uh, Cal Shardle would be uh, show up in references for the Ohio State Leadership Studies. Uh, I ended up uh, going on the faculty at Ohio State after two years postdoc at Minnesota. And Cal was the guy who had raised the money and put the team together across two different colleges and eight different departments and five different funding sources to actually get those studies to be done. Um, he, he was a, a somebody who made rain for that group, and, and that uh, set in wonderful places. I think we're in the era of the rainmakers nowadays, and uh, that's one of the reasons why I'm so interested in the SIOP Foundation as a way of helping SIOP uh, make rain and, and getting grants out and scholarships 
uh, most particularly to make this field really grow to the size and uh, specializations that it needs to embrace. Shelly, who are some of the people you might identify as role models? Okay, my role models also at the outset were my mentors in graduate school, in particular, uh, Patricia Kane Smith, who is the dissertation supervisor for my dissertation, which is somewhat of a surprise since I was always interested in testing, selection, etc. And Pat was most interested in satisfaction. But uh, Bob Guyan, who was there too, was also the chair of the department when I was doing my dissertation, and he had limited time to work with students. So, but uh, I worked quite a bit with him. So Bob Guyan and Pat Smith, early on in my career, and Carol Vale also, who was at Bowling Green uh, during my time in terms of statistics. So they influenced me in terms of how to approach issues. And basically the notion was, if you're gonna do something, do it right. Don't take shortcuts, but do it right, even if it takes you a little bit longer. Uh, more recently, um, through my career, my role models became my collaborators. Uh, the three that I would like to particularly mention are Jim Oots, Wayne Cassio, and Irv Goldstein. The three of us, the four of us, got together in the 80s from different uh, sources to work on a project. And we continued to work for a number of years on multiple projects. And I most appreciated how much I learned from them and their approaches to solving problems. And the collaboration and teamwork, I think, led to better outcomes that I probably would have created had I done it on my own. So they are my contemporaries who influenced me, uh, as well as I still have my mentors, going back to Bob, uh, Pat, Carol Vale and others at Bowling Green. It's it, you know the the idea of having good colleagues and and good peers has come up over and over again um, when we talk to people about the secret to a successful career. It is um, certainly something that I identify with and agree with myself. Is it is it luck? Is there something that you look for to know that this is a potentially fruitful collaboration? Well, it's kind of interesting. It relates to in my history. When I went to Berkeley in 1969, it was for a one-year appointment as a visitor because Bob Guyan could not go to Berkeley again as a visitor because he was chair of the department at Bowling Green. So Bob said to them, do you want a new PhD to come instead? And uh, they said, okay, I guess it was late in the year. They couldn't find anybody else. So I went out for a one-year appointment and about uh, sometime in November of that year of 1969, they said, would you like a tenure track position? Interestingly, they just came to me and said, would you like a tenure track position? There was no search, no uh, uh, no formal procedure. But we said yes, because we wanted to stay at Berkeley. And at the time, at that time, I was the fourth IO psychologist. We had uh, Ed Gazelli, Milt Blood, and Bill Graham. Within a couple of years, uh, Ed retired, Milt and Bill moved on. And so I was left to be by myself. And so the decision I made at that time is what I would do is I would seek out collaborators from other departments and universities. And that was the approach I took. And that's how I wound up eventually more by chance than plan to work with people like uh, Jim, Irv, and Wayne. Joyce Hogan also collaborated with us and others. And I've collaborated with people from outside of psychology, with Mark Schultz, from the law school. So um, collaboration was something I intentionally decided 
I would pursue, given I was the lone IO psychologist at Berkeley starting in the early 70s. That makes sense. I also got my job because someone just came up to me on the street and offered it. Didn't? Isn't that how everyone gets their job? Uh, I thought that was normal. Not legal today. <laughs> um, Shelley, the other thing I thought that was interesting when I was uh, watching your Living History series is that a lot of those names that are coming up were women. Um, so Mary Tanner and Pat Smith. I'm wondering, was that notable at the time, or did it was it not notable? Well, you know, I just said that you know here's a good person. I was going to work with them, and they were. <laughs> I never considered whether male, female, black, white, whatever, was I can be able to learn from them and work with them. And so, you know, Mary gave me my first consulting job. Um, she was the chair of the Education and Training Committee in the early 70s. And Bob Guyne, who was president about then, put me on that committee uh, when I was for, for Division 14 at the time. And Mary just it was natural. She came to me and said, would you like to work on this particular project of physical ability testing at AT&T? And I said, sure. So. Uh, I did have worked with a number of females. I've had a number of successful female graduate students, uh, Christy Whitney, Karen May, Susan Jackson, and I'm probably going to be in trouble because I'm not mentioning all that I should. <laughs> I've, I've worked with people who I felt uh, had something to contribute to me in terms of providing a better understanding of things than I had with myself. So. Uh, I'd, I'd say that uh, Pat Smith especially was distinctive, as was Mary Tenaber, and uh, they were certainly uh, outnumbered in terms of ratios of males to females, uh, mm -hmm. significantly outnumbered. But uh, moving to Bowling Green and, and getting to know Pat Smith in her latter years was just absolutely fabulous experience and a really wonderful time, her emphasis on uh, job satisfaction and you know, creating the JDI and so on. Uh, those are landmarks in the development of the field. But let me say one more thing about Pat. And one of the things about Pat was that she was very welcoming. If you had a problem that you wanted to discuss, whether it was personal or you know academically oriented, you can just go over to her house and. Uh, You'd sit around at her table and talk to her about it. So she made you feel very comfortable, and you were always part of her team. Uh, she never questioned the topic I wanted to study. Again, I was interested in prediction models, which was not Pat's forte, but she was great as a supervisor. And so uh, you know, just going to her house, uh, her husband, Oli Smith, was also very helpful with some of his uh, insights into your work. And so it was just a great experience at Bowling Green, having uh, Pat, Holy, Bob, Carol Vale, others. Uh, Milt was not at Bowling Green when I was there. <laughs> okay, so I think we have time for just one more quick question. And um, it's, it's an opportunity to kind of think about all the things we've touched on today. Your, both of your careers have been so multifaceted, so impactful. I'm wondering, what's the one thing, what's the one part that you're most proud of? It's a tough question, so I'll let you choose who goes first. Well, I um, had the great good fortune to chair 79 doctoral dissertation committees, Ooh. and I learned <laughs> immense amounts from each one of my students. 
uh, and um, would do that again in a heartbeat. That is that is quite a significant number of dissertations. <laughs> wow. Shelley, what about you? Yeah, I didn't have as many dissertations supervised, but working with the graduate students was very, very rewarding. But in terms of uh, what I'm most proud of is the applied work that I was able to do. And I was always again, interested in prediction models, et cetera, and looking for fairer models than we had in existence at the time, hmm. models that would increase diversity in the workforce. And also the ability to try new things like video-based testing or sliding band. That was done in, again, in collaboration with people like Jim Uther, Goldstein, and Wayne Cassio. So the impact of the academic research that I had done and with others and by myself, and its impact on applying it in organizations and seeing changes in organizations is what I'm most proud of. Um, years ago, someone said at a, at a meeting that I was heavily responsible for integrating the fire department in San Francisco. And that's a project I worked on with um, Jim, Irv, and Wayne. And so I'm very proud of the fact that the work that I've done had had an impact in organizations and made changes to create a more diverse workforce than we had prior to my entry into that organization. A true scientist practitioner. Yes. Well, Shelley, no, this has been an absolute honor to have you on the show. We really appreciate you um, joining us and, and being such good sports about the game. Uh, and I think this, this brings us to the end of our show today. Thank you for having me. Delighted to have been here. Best wishes to everybody going forward. Yes. Thank you. Thank you both. And uh, that's going to... Wrap us up for gig number 11. Uh, as always, please join uh, Discord. Say hello to the gig community. Uh, definitely hit subscribe and that notification bell in YouTube so that you never miss a show. Uh, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time for another great IO get-together. Bye. Oh, the times were hard and the wages low. Leave a Johnny, leave a I guess it's time for us to go And it's time for us to leave her Leave a Johnny, leave Oh, leave a Johnny, leave For the voyage is done and the winds don't blow And it's time for us to leave her I can't believe it's already over can you? To keep the excitement going, check out our website at thegig.online. Join our Discord community to chat with your hosts and your fellow giggers. Subscribe to our YouTube channel so that you never miss a gig. Above all, thank you for joining us, and see you next time for another great I.O. get-together.